got a cool show this week, or, or, we, or I think it's going to be a cool show. I saw this on a History uh, Channel documentary, um, and about the, the Bermuda Triangle has been in the news, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to email this guy who uh, I saw this documentary about who had this crazy experience of maybe, perhaps, traveling through time. Who knows? We've had a Back to the Future meme that went crazy. So, hey, it all, <laughs> it all relates to our Trolls podcast. There's yeah, synergy. Yeah. I'm going to try to keep up with you, man, but I got a... Um I got a four-week-old, and I got that eye twitch that happens uh, when you uh, go for like a month without legitimate sleep. So yeah. <laughs> it's like it's it's ten it's ten twenty-three a.m. and it's already started. It's like uh, get sleep, twitch, twitch, yeah. twitch, and it's yeah, it's it's a thing. So I'm gonna try to keep up with you. I'm drinking lots of coffee. Um, that could yeah. be the twitching, you know, <laughs> that coffee. That could be the twitch. It's just pumping that juice right into the veins, man. Yeah, well, I mean, it's keeping me alive, so. I guess so. Or at least conscious. But, uh, yeah, we have a new patron this week, Steve Burris, or Burris. I, I think I, I think I thanked Steve Burris in a previous episode. Well, hey, Steve, you get thanked twice because you know what? You're great. I think he Love might be you, $10 Steve. level, so anybody $10 level, we got to thank twice, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyone out there who, who gives us their money and has a complicated name, we love you. Come on over to the podcast. Come on over. Patreon.com slash Don't Feed the Trolls. But uh, we've talked about a lot of controversial topics. And uh, like I said, this one was recently trending in the news. Um, but the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle, uh, also known as the Devil's Triangle. <laughs> Ooh. That's uh, evil. It, I guess it's getting closer to being solved. Or is it? We don't know. You sent me an article this morning that suggests it was not uh, written about really well recently and that it was actually not solved, but they were kind of making it sound like it was. Right. But that, all those articles, if you haven't read any of them, uh, scientists have suggested that there's new evidence via like satellite photos that large bursts of wind are creating these hexagon shaped clouds that right. could be pushing down and could sink ships or make planes fly off course or crash. Um,. Uh, some people think it's paranormal activity, time warps. Uh, there's also other theories that like methane could be released from underneath the ground, and it could be coming up at such extreme forces it could sink a ship. Wow, like a big bubble. Yeah, a giant bubble coming up. So there's all these kinds of things, and I think uh, in the '60s is when all this started coming out about uh, problems. But they've had you know hundreds of years of issues over there. So. Right. So this week's guest is an expert pilot who has flown over the. Bermuda Triangle many times. He's appeared in many documentaries about the Bermuda Triangle, uh, but his experience is a bit different. In 1970, he had a mysterious experience when uh, flying a small plane back to Miami. What he calls an electric fog covered his plane. All his instruments failed, and the story takes an odd turn when after being in the fog for only three and a half minutes, he claims to have traveled over 100 miles and was already back to Miami. So, yeah. It, it, it's a pretty interesting story, so we figured we'd have uh, Bruce on the podcast. Yeah, if nothing, we can just learn more about the Bermuda Triangle, what's going on. But uh, did he did he travel into a space warp? Right. Is time travel possible? Space-time continuum? Yeah. Let's bring on Bruce. Welcome, Bruce Gernon, to the podcast. Uh, we appreciate you taking time to uh, to chat with us today. 
All right, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nate. Yeah, we. Uh, I think I saw a documentary of you on the History Channel uh, a couple years ago. And uh, recently on Facebook, the, the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle was trending, that they said the scientists solved the mystery or whatever. But then some people came out today and said that they didn't solve the mystery. So I thought it would be cool to bring you on the show and talk about the Bermuda Triangle and your experiences. Okay, yeah, that was interesting about the, the clouds that they saw. And, uh, and then it went viral for some reason. But that was first on like six months ago I, I watched it. And then they repeated it uh-huh. days ago. And then it oh, goes really? viral on the internet. So there's yeah. still a lot of interest in the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, there's tons. I mean, I, I would say that I'm fascinated by all the unknown stuff in our world. But uh, your story is very, very interesting. I guess we could start off with just a little history, where you live, how you got into flying, and your passion for the Bermuda Triangle. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I moved to uh, from New York to Florida in 1956. I was only 10 years old. My dad was a, a pilot, and so he got me into flying. Yeah, I always worked with him. So I started flying uh, when I was, and then we bought our first airplane when I was 18. That was a Piper Cherokee 6. And uh, we started flying to the Bahamas in the mid-60s. And then from Florida, is that about 150 miles-ish? To uh, the Bahamas? Yeah. Well, yeah, it'd be like 150 miles to, uh, say, Andros Island or the Great Bahama Bank. Bimini's the closest island. It's only like... 55 miles. Why don't you tell us, uh, our, our listeners, a little bit about what, what happened on that day in 1970 and uh, what you experienced? When I had this experience uh, with my dad back in 1970, I had uh, 2010 vision. Really oh, wow. see good. You know, I could like read the bottom line on the, on the test. You know? Yeah. So I, I could actually see things that other people couldn't even see back then. So that actually helped me quite a bit to, to take a good look at what I experienced, this meteorological phenomenon it appeared to be. And uh, my dad and I were working on a development project in the Bahamas near Nassau on an island called Andros Island. And so we were flying there about every week, every other week. Okay. For about a year, we worked on this project. So we used to fly to an airport there called Fresh Creek. And that's where uh, we had this Autech Navy base, which is a mysterious place that works uh, with submarines. A lot of confidential information there. They, they won't really speak to anybody about exactly what they do. But we were I was flying back from there on a rainy day, and it was too, too many uh, storms over the island to take off in the morning. And they didn't have any telephones on the whole island back then. Yeah. And so we, we really couldn't call in to get any weather information. But we've researched what the weather was like on that day, working with a meteor logical scientists who found that uh, there were large thunderstorms over the entire island all morning. That's why it looked so bad to me, but it was clear over the ocean, but I couldn't see that. And so it finally started uh, dissipating around three in the afternoon. So we were able to take off and, and take a look at what was out there. Yeah, the whole island had uh, storms over it, but uh, like they were dissipating. And then we had to stay down low at a thousand feet because of the low ceiling. And then when we got to the edge of the island, western edge, we could see that it was clear over the ocean. And that's where the Great Bahama Bank is. So I was able to start climbing up. We were using our instruments to fly directly to Bimini. And when I started to climb up, uh, I noticed that offshore there was a strange looking lenticular cloud. It was down low compared to normal lenticular clouds or 
way up, like 20,000, 15,000 feet. This yeah. was about 500 feet over the ocean. And it was about a mile long, 1,000 feet thick, and half mile wide, kind of shaped like a lens. Hmm. And it looked harmless, just it seemed unusual that it has like silky edges, smooth edges to it, not like uh, normal clouds that are down hmm. low. And it looked harmless, so I, I climbed right over it. It was directly in my flight path, so I didn't want to change path. So I climbed over it. And then when we got over it, uh, that's when this phenomenon took place. The clouds started spreading out right underneath us. And I'm climbing up at 1,000 feet per minute, and it's climbing the same rate as me. Huh. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it at first because I had to contact Miami Radio and file my flight plan when I got to a high enough altitude that I could contact them, which was around uh, three or 4,000 feet. And I was busy filing that flight plan, so I really couldn't concentrate on this cloud below me. But when I got through with the filing... I looked around and I was amazed at what I was seeing. It's like this cloud spread out. I really couldn't see how far it spread out, but it kept building up right underneath me. And then it engulfed the airplane and I penetrated into it. And it looked like a typical cloud inside. Visibility was only like 50 feet or something like that. Not really too turbulent. And it was rising up. And apparently it would give me like a boost because it's cushion of air going up. And I'd burst out of the cloud and then I'd get a couple hundred feet above it and... Then it would catch up to me again, hmm. and I'd go back in it and uh, boost me out again. It's kind of like an old an old school video game when Mario Brothers are jumping <laughs> on the clouds, kind yeah, of thing. Right. <laughs> and uh, I kept getting higher and higher. Finally, my dad, he was my co-pilot. He's a licensed pilot. He said, uh, "Maybe we better turn around." And we got up to over ten thousand feet. Huh. I didn't think that was a good idea because. What we had just come from, I knew, had spread out. So we'd be flying through the storm, and then we didn't have oxygen back then. And when you get above 12,000, you're going to need oxygen pretty shortly after that. And so I told him, well, we'll go just a few more minutes. And, uh, yeah, if we can't get out of here, we're going to have to turn back, I guess. But then we broke free at 11,500 feet. And uh, when I looked back behind me and around me, I was amazed at what I saw. It's a small little lenticular cloud had Apparently, it was like a bubble cloud, and it had spread out. It had burst somehow. It had ignited. I was flying at 105 miles an hour, and uh, this storm was moving way faster hmm. because uh, I, it was, uh, as far as I could see, it was on either side of me for, for 10 miles on either side of me, and it had spread out that far. And I estimated it might have been moving at uh, 300 miles an hour below hmm. me and, and around me. Uh, well, the sky was clear ahead of me, but behind me was this huge semi-circular shaped storm that I figured must have been a squall. It was spreading out fast. So I, I leveled off at 11,500, started cruising at 200 miles an hour and tried to forget about what I just experienced and get back to navigate flying the airplane. What are you thinking in that moment? Do, yeah. Are you thinking this is this is a phenomenon or you just are you thinking, yeah, I don't understand what's going on or I just need to get to safety? Well, right at that point, I, I was relaxed that I had escaped this uh, squall. I figured it was just a squall. I just happened to get caught up in the birth of it. Yeah. And I figured that's the end, that'd be the end of it. So then uh, five minutes later, I go forward 15 miles. And, and then I can see in front of me, like 10 miles, and I see another huge squall. Only this time, the curve is in the opposite of the one that was behind me. It's curving toward me. Hmm. And it had built up now to over 40,000 feet high. So I, I wasn't capable of climbing over it. So I considered flying under it. And then I, I noticed that it was laying right on the surface of the ocean. It didn't have a, a surface ceiling that I could fly under. Hmm. Do they normally? 
Yeah, yeah, always have either rain or just clear sky underneath the cloud. So this was just different. It was just kind of top to bottom. You couldn't get under it. You couldn't go over it, really. That's right, yeah. Wow. I was still um, navigating on instruments, aiming straight for Bimini, but and now I was like uh, 50 miles from Bimini, 50 miles east. I stayed on course, and I, and I went ahead and penetrated into the storm to see what it was like. And there, there wasn't any uh, rain, precipitation. Skies started getting darker, and, and then the deeper I penetrated, I, I started to see this lightning. After I got about a mile inside, the lightning became really intense. And, and it was an unusual kind of lightning, too. It wasn't lightning bolts. It was lightning flashes that would light up the whole sky. The deeper I got in it, the darker it got, more intense the light became. I mean, I'm like five miles high. I could see the ocean when it striped the light. Hmm. The skies looked clear. I could see maybe uh, well, five miles down to the ocean. No, two miles. I could see two miles down to the ocean. I was at 11,500 feet, so it's two miles. Right. So I could see forward maybe three miles or so. It just, I'd never seen anything like that before, or been in anything like that before with these flashes. So I decided to deviate from my flight path. And so I started heading due south. I made a sharp left-hand turn and popped out of the storm. And then I flew along the edge of it. And I contacted Miami Radio, and I told them that I, I was deviating from my flight path because of a storm, and uh, I was going to head south, see if I could fly around it. And as I headed south, I noticed that it had that curve to it. It was like a perfectly shaped curve. And then I could see that apparently uh, I saw the other storm that I had just escaped from, and it was curving and connecting on the opposite end, about 30, 40 miles from where it had originated. Hmm. And it connected in a perfectly circular shape on the opposite end, about 50 miles east of Bimini. Right. And then the, the bottom connected first, and then the two big anvil heads formed on the top, you know, like 40, 50,000 feet up. And then these two anvil heads connected to each other, and they formed this gigantic tunnel between the squall. And wow. that's when uh, I had to make this decision whether to try to fly back to Andros or uh, take a chance and see if we could fly through this tunnel because it was aiming right for Miami. <laughs> Had you gone through any sort of tunnel like that before in an aircraft? No pilot in this right mind would go through a tunnel like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like a tornado, isn't it? Essentially, just a sideways tornado? Uh, no, no, it's not like a tornado. Okay. It doesn't spin fast like a tornado. I call it a time tunnel vortex. Huh. I was at 11,500, and the center of this tunnel appeared to be around 10,000, so I consulted with my dad to see if he agreed with my decision to go ahead and fly through this. And, and so he concurred. Huh. I guess he felt the same as me. You know, it's like, apparently we're kind of like trapped in this very unusual squall. And uh, so I started uh, descending toward the center of the tunnel. And I noticed that it was getting smaller and smaller rapidly. And it was about 10 miles long. How wide? Well, when I first saw it, it was like a mile wide. But as I got closer to it, it got smaller and smaller. And uh, hmm. when I, penetrated it it was probably maybe six or seven hundred feet in diameter and i had gone to full power dove down right to the red line of the airspeed indicator 230 miles an hour because i could see it was rapidly getting smaller and uh here's where a lot of luck and and fate came in where i had actually miscalculated because it it would have uh, taken me about three minutes to fly through that tunnel but it it only took 20 seconds, hmm. and that's because that's when the aircraft penetrated the tunnel. An amazing thing happened. The, the swirling lines instantly formed. They made penetration. Immediately, they formed, and 
it's something, you know, like I'll never forget. That's why I was telling you about my vision was really good that cancer. I memorized what I was seeing. And uh, the lines were swirling counterclockwise, and that's forward in physics and time. Right. That way. And I, I was boosted forward through space and time. I, I burst out of the end of the tunnel. By the time I got to the end of it, it was only 30 feet wide because the, wing, the wingtips scraped the edges of it. Hmm. And when I looked back, I could see these contrails forming on the wingtips streaming behind the airplane. And then I looked at the tunnel and I watched it collapse right behind me. Wow. And now it was like looked like a big slit that was rotating clockwise from the other side. And I was supposed to be in blue sky when we reached the other end. That's why I went through this tunnel, because it was blue sky, clear sky, looking toward Miami. Mm-hmm. And instantly, something strange again happened as I exited the tunnel. I felt this strange sensation that I've only felt once, and, and it felt like, a, like zero gravity, but there was a difference. It, it also felt like we were hydroplaning, hmm. kind of like skidding in the air, through the air. Like, like you were going super fast, and you slammed the brakes on, and you were sliding? Yeah, something like that. It's a, You know the feeling, right? Right. Yeah. Hydroplane before, it's a very unusual feeling. Yeah, you kind of just feel like the bottom gives out from underneath you. So did you experience, like, uh, G-force? Like, when you were in the tunnel, did it did it hit you that like you were going faster, perhaps, than, than you thought you were? Not at that time. I didn't really think about that. But l- later in time, yeah, sure, hmm. absolutely. So you didn't feel, like, physically any pressure of higher G-force on your body? No, no. I actually felt negative, or zero Gs is what I felt. Oh, wow. We were floating for about 10 seconds. And that's when this thing happened that took me 30 years of research to come up with, and I, and I call it electronic fall. Hmm. That word is starting to become known now. I created that term a few huh. years after I experienced this, and I've talked to probably over 100 people that have experienced this electronic fall because it can oh, wow. happen not only to airplanes, but it can happen to boats too apparently when these tunnels form when they collapse they emit like a puff kind of like a sphere of this electronic fog which would probably barely be visible if you're outside of it looking for it right but when you're in it visibility changes and it's very strange because it's in an airplane we went from like 10 miles of visibility to two miles apparently i was still 10,000 feet and i wasn't sure if i could see the ocean it only was, was like blurred and then there was no horizon and, and no sky anymore just dull gray and it was like fuzzy it was like looking at a an old tv screen that turned black and white it used to get all fuzzy looking like yeah. and that's what gave me the idea to call it electronic fog and then another famous pilot named martin caden he experienced it with the group of people i wrote about it in my book fog it's one of the most documented cases and uh he helped me to discover why this is so different than normal fog because he he said that he wrote about it on three different occasions so i i studied his writings and read them multiple times and then it kind of hit me he trying to explain what it was like he said it was flying inside a milk bottle it's like thinking, what do you mean by that it's like ah oh, i see what do you mean see he he didn't realize no one has ever realized this before and it's still not proven but i believe someday it will be that this fog attaches itself to the vessel and travels with you Hmm. So, like a stat, like static electricity. Yeah, or saying almost fire. Okay. And there's been lots of planes, boats that have been in it. And no one ever realized they were attached to it. They they thought they were traveling through this fog. Right.
Is that why you think you get the weightlessness feeling because it's attached to you? When it first attaches, yeah, that's when you probably get a weightless, strange feeling. Once hmm. once it clings to you, you probably feel something for five or ten seconds while this was happening. Of course, the other thing is it affects time. So there, there's been dozens of pilots that have died because of not so many boaters on it, but pilots, you know, it's unforgiving the plane. And so what happens is the pilot becomes uh, disoriented and then spatial disorientation sets in. Mm -hmm. And that's like a mental They don't know which way is up. Problem. Yeah, they don't know. And they're on instruments and so they, they end up doing a graveyard spiral. Many of them right. have done that. So take us back to your experience. You come out of the tunnel and your wingtips kind of hit the edges. Yeah. And you look behind you and you see it kind of poof, disappear in a way or... Well, it collapsed. And then, yeah, the tunnel collapsed. It collapses. And then what happens at that point? So you said you, you go weightless, right? Right. And uh, couldn't exactly figure out why this was so strange. So I was able to contact Miami Radio and tell them, got around the storm that we, I had told them about earlier. And I told them I was now about 90 miles. Because when I entered this tunnel, I was uh, 100 miles east of Miami. Mm -hmm. So when I came out, it should be 90 miles. And, and the other thing was... See, all of my electronic navigational instruments were malfunctioning. Right. So I couldn't actually pinpoint my position. And, and even the, uh, the wet compass was slowly spinning counterclockwise. Hmm. Huh. That's not comforting. Well, yeah, that's why a lot of pilots <laughs> in the past end up uh, not being able to survive it because they can't understand what, what's going on with their instruments. See, what I did was right. not even use my instruments hardly anymore. I just kind of flew by instincts try to maintain the same course. I never made a turn because many pilots start making turns and they're in this chronic fog. Right. And after they've made three turns, then they forget which way was north. Right. And so then they're totally lost. So the radar, or Miami radio, he, he couldn't find me on his radar. So he switched me over to the radar center in Miami, which had much more accurate radar. And he, he realized that we seem to be having a problem there. And uh, so then uh, I switch over to Miami radio, which radar, which controlled all the airline traffic back then. He wasn't able to identify us either. At that point, uh, my dad went into a state of panic, ripped the microphone out of my hand, started screaming at me. <laughs> Cussing, too, which you never <laughs> are allowed to do on the public radio like that. <laughs> so you were able to contact Miami via radio, but they couldn't see you on the radar. That's right. And I had a new, brand new uh, radar transponder, which would have helped them to identify me. That didn't help. And you're still in this gray visibility? Right. That's why the, apparently the radar doesn't uh, penetrate this electronic fog. Mm -hmm. So you go through the vortex tunnel, you pop out, you come into the gray fog, you're talking to Miami, but they don't, they don't see you, and then... So they, they really couldn't help me. So I calmed my dad down, <laughs> and we had a passenger, he became nauseous, and he... He couldn't talk using vocabulary anymore. Oh, wow. He was like mumbling. So I had to block him out of my mind because he was trying to tell me something. <laughs> and it didn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the only one holding all this together. <laughs> this fog has done that to people. It's made him nauseous, other people, and, and it's put people to sleep. So it wasn't much. The guy couldn't help us. Didn't He didn't have any airplanes between Miami and, and Bimini or past Bimini at the time and all the airline traffic that were talking on the radio they were all silent they were probably all wondering wow what's going to happen to me hmm. so then a minute or so later the uh, radar controller 
comes back on the microphone, and and this time he's he's actually yelling, which was very unusual. They don't hmm. yell. They always stay real calm. And he's yelling really loud. He, he's got an airplane directly over Miami Beach. So, <laughs> is that you? you know? And I tell him, I look around, I just couldn't see it. I look at my watch, and uh, we'd only been flying for 33 minutes. So that, so that meant it'd be another, take another 30 minutes before I reached Miami. But I, I told him, no, I'm, I'm probably like uh, 85 miles or so east still, because it, it, was, it would be impossible for me to be over Miami. And then another strange thing happened these, these slits in the fog formed parallel to my direction of flight hmm. all around the airplane. And it, and it kind of formed like an illusion because I didn't understand what was going on here. I didn't realize this fog was attached to me. Hmm. I thought I was flying through this fog. And, uh, and so these slits, I imagined that I figured each slit was uh, two or three miles long. But in reality, each slit was only two or three hundred yards because that's how thick you know, the diameter of this sphere of fog would have been that was attached to me. Hmm. And so the at first, they were like slits or lines, and then they opened up to slits. And then this process took only about 10 seconds where the slits got wider, and I could see through the slits, and I could see blue sky through the slits. Wow. I mean, I could see, like, the blue ocean and, and a city. Hmm. Within 10 seconds, the electronic fog had dissipated, and I, I looked below me, and there's Miami Beach. I'm directly over. Wow. And then I looked behind me, expecting to see this huge fog bank in the Skies were perfectly clear. Wow. So the tower's shout, shouting at you that they've got you. Right. So then I, I told him, yeah, you're right. That's me. I'm directly over Miami Beach. South Beach, bringing the heat. Can y'all feel that? Can y'all feel that? Jig it out. Here I am in the place where I come let go In Miami, the base and the sunset low Every day like a Mardi Gras Everybody party all day, no work, all play, okay? So we sip a little something, leave the rest to spill Me and Charlie at the bar, running up a high bill Nothing less than ill, when we dress to kill Every time the ladies pass, they be like Can y'all feel me? All ages and races so I said, okay, I'll see you later, I'm going to Palm Beach Back then, there's, there weren't too many rules and regulations so. <laughs> What, how how are you processing the fog and the slits and everything as you're going? You're just going, well, that was weird. I'll, I'll just head home. Yeah. yeah. How are you processing that in the air? I realized that after uh, the fog dissipated that I had experienced a phenomenon that was incredibly, not only powerful, but important. Hmm. The future of mankind to know all about this. So I committed it to memory immediately right at that point. But I had just... And your dad is there sort of corroborating it with you or, or helping you uh, vocalize what you're seeing? Is that mm. is that occurring or with the passenger? Yeah, sure. My dad was co-pilot, so we you know, did it together. And then when we landed at Palm Beach, I checked my watch and flight time. And uh, the flight was uh, only took 45 minutes. And I had made that identical flight a dozen times before, and it always took around an, an hour and 20 minutes. Wow. So somehow there was a half-hour gap. I got there a half hour sooner than I should have. And then we checked the fuel. This was year, a few years later because I had, still had the fuel receipts. And, and it ended up on all the other flights, we would burn around uh, 40 gallons. And on this flight, we, we burned 10 gallons less. And that would be the half hour of flight time. Wow. Hmm. Did you corroborate with, are there transcripts of communications with the tower too? Like you said, you called them before you went into the storm and then they clearly spotted you over miami right yeah no i yeah i got it oh 
with some officials, but it was a few years later to see if we could get the recordings. Back then, they kept the recordings only for uh, one year. And then they wipe mm. them. Yeah. yeah. So I couldn't get that. So there's no log um, or transcript of, of, of contact. No. So you have this experience. You're... Your dad's there. He he experiences it with you. Mm-hmm. You land. You go. Something was a weird. Then what do you do? How do you how do you make sense of it? Well, I didn't make sense of it for just over a year, uh, but I knew how important it was. So I would memorize it every day for twice every day, twice a day. I'd spend maybe fifteen minutes just sort of meditating and reviewing what I had seen. And and after uh, thirteen months later. I'm watching a TV show with the Dick Cavett show, and he had a guy on named Ivan Sanderson, and he wrote a book that related to this. I think he called it Limbo of the Lost Area. It, it had been called the Bermuda Triangle, too, in an Argosy magazine. But it wasn't popularly known as that. Yet. No, and it wasn't known hardly. I didn't know anything about it. And so he's being interviewed on TV, and uh, he starts talking about strange fogs and storms huh. and and time warps so he uses the word time warp yeah that that's when it hit huh. me because i never really thought about the factor of time i mean I, it was in my mind and in my calculations and all that how i did you think that maybe something about the storm helped the, the plane move faster than than it might have seemed to be moving no no it, I, that never occurred to you yeah yeah they used to say that a long time ago but you don't hear that much anymore. Naysayers or whoever scientists mainstream say, "Oh, well, he probably got a boost while he was in the storm." Some some tailwind or yeah. something. Or another one was, "Oh, he got caught up in bad weather and lost track of time." Sure, uh, Occam's razor, right? It's probably something that is uh, explainable. You know, the easy the easy answer. Right. But I know what happened, so that's why I continue in my studies. You know, after I realized it was, had to do with time, I started researching the subject of time. Hmm. And I spent several years just reading about how it works. You definitely now believe that you've traveled in time. Yeah, which is uh, that's awesome. according to all the laws of physics, you can't do that. Almost all scientists believe it can't be done. And they're starting to change their attitude a little bit, though. The atomic structure, I think maybe they've moved tiny parts of the atom through time wow well and there's yeah those there's the what what did what did einstein call the 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 way that particles can relate to each other even if they are extreme distances apart you know you you do something to one particle and the other particle reacts and and no matter how far they are away there seems to be a connection so yeah there's there's a lot of interesting stuff at the molecular level yeah i i want to i want to ask you a little bit about um how weather might uh, in your research play a role in that because clearly there's you know a lot of mysterious disappearances in the bermuda triangle um and that happens to be uh you know a place where there's just a lot of storms there's a lot of you know hurricanes or tropical storms or just storms in general just because of the 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 uh convergence of you know all the different pressure systems and, and the heat and all that so do you think that like the phenomenon is related to weather specifically, or do you think that this kind of stuff can happen just out of blue sky? Or, I mean, it seems like you had, you had an experience where two storms came together to create this 
Phenomenal. I think the electronic fog can can happen almost anywhere. Okay. I believe it formed in the tunnel that I flew through, okay. and then when it collapses, it emits this sphere of fog, and then depending on the atmosphere, it could uh, drift down to the ocean floor and encounter a boat, or it could hit updrafts and travel, who knows, hundreds of miles somewhere, and then come back down to land again, maybe in the interior, 100 miles inland, you know? Hmm. Have other people's stories that you've corroborated with been very similar in, in, in that they've traveled through a, a tunnel like that? Uh, uh, I know of only uh, two others that have uh, traveled through the tunnel. And the one was in 1978, uh, a guy was flying a little plane, a little smaller than what I was in, but uh, much slower. And, uh, and he was going the opposite way. He was heading toward the Bahamas, but he was in the same identical area as me, hmm. within, say, 30 miles or something. And, and so, yeah, he ended up in the tunnel. And he had two passengers with him that were not pilots. He didn't make it to the other end of the tunnel. But he popped out, and he, he was okay in clear sky again, and he was over land. So it was like an emergency, I guess, for him. You know, They, were, they didn't know what happened. So they saw a, a road that looked pretty good where they could land. So they landed. Hmm. And then some people came up to him and, and they were Cuban. They were in Cuba. <laughs> no. <laughs> no way. This was back in 78. So that was bad. So he said, I'm getting the heck out of here. So <laughs> he jumped back in the plane. He took off off the road. <laughs> and I gotta get out of Cuba. He got airborne again. And apparently this electronic fog was attached to his plane. After he was airborne again? Yeah, some remnants of it. Wow. He started cruising again, and then all of a sudden he says there was like some swirling fog surrounding his plane. And then he got disoriented, and then this time he had to crash land on Great Inagua, which is about like uh, 500 miles from Florida. Wow. And uh, it killed him. Oh, it did. Oh, no. But the, the two passengers both survived. With some broken bones, and, and they told this story. Wow. But I was never, I tried to contact him years later, but was unable to. And then somebody emailed me not too long ago, and they said, I get a lot of people that call me and thank me because they, they've had experience that bothered them all their life, some of them. And then they read my book, and it's like, wow, now I know what happened to me. What's the name of your book for our listeners? Well, it's called The Fog, a never-before-published theory of the Bermuda Triangle phenomenon. And I've just so been awarded a, a contract with a publishing company to write a, a sequel to that. So we're working on that right now, and that'll be out at the end of this, this summer. You think this fog can attach to things, but it can go down to the surface of the water. So you believe a boat could go into the fog, and then it could end up hundreds of miles somewhere else? Kind of like a time portal? And then it could come out and hit, hit another island or yeah oh yeah i can think of one case where the coast guard even admitted us made a statement that it would have, it would have been impossible for this little sailboat that was in the virgin islands to reach mexico which was 600 miles away in the time span that they found it <laughs> i mean they found it like a few hours later 600 miles in a different spot oh wow so the coast guard was looking for a boat that was lost yeah they found them but they they said this something was strange it says he couldn't have got there that time. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, it can happen to boats, too. And he did report he was in some kind of a storm over the radio just before he disappeared. Oh, and he disappeared. They only found the boat. Oh, wow. The, the captain of the ship was gone, and they just found the boat. Just found his boat, yeah. 40-foot oh, sail or something like that. So have you re uh, read anything in the recent uh, press articles about the, the hexagon clouds? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was amazed that went viral like it did, uh, it showed that uh, there's still a lot of interest in the Bermuda Triangle, which is I, I'm glad. You know, maybe my next book will be a bestseller. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because I believe I have the 
the best of all the theories. And I've been working on it way longer. Yeah, there's a couple theories out there. The the the, the gas underground. Yeah, that could actually happen. Still hasn't it, quite been proven. But the rogue wave theory has been absolutely proven. He's evoking get hit by rogue waves and be, be totally wiped out. So you're not necessarily thinking, I mean, obviously there's, you know, there's, there's random phenomena that aren't um, outside of the bounds of understood science, like methane bubbles being released or rogue waves. Those are things that we know occur that could be could explain some of the disappearances in the area. Right. What we don't, your theory is something that we clearly don't have research or data on, which is this uh, this electronic right. fog that attaches to your your vessel and somehow time space continuum is is changed <laughs> that's right yeah. so you think te- somewhere in the somewhere in that experience you know if, if enough research unfolds over time that uh that there is the technology for for time travel absolutely yeah it, it, it's going to happen in the future i mean electricity you know say a couple hundred years ago we didn't have any idea of what it was and we saw this lightning and uh, there were lots of theories about what that was. <laughs> sure, it was uh, it was Thor, the god of thunder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So look what we've done with the right. electricity, and that's getting into aviation today now too. It's start they're starting to realize that maybe the future of aviation, not uh, gasoline powered propelled planes or jets. Yep. You know. Wow. So so do you believe it's some sort of like when the fog sort of surrounds the boat or the plane? It is moving at a speed, or is it just like you go through it? Like a portal? It's like if you take, like every movie explains time travel, where you take a piece of paper, you fold it in half. You punch the pencil through it. Yeah. So I can understand how they relate that to my flight. That something similar to that happened, like uh, going through a wormhole. One of the theories is these mini black holes is what they would, or mini wormholes. Like, yeah. Is that essentially the, that sort of is parallel or lines up with what you experienced? Yeah, yeah, it must, yeah. It's, it's very similar to the theory of a, a wormhole, but it's different than the wormhole. In that you, yeah, you were, you were intact, you know? Like. Yeah, I, I flew through the tunnel, and then when I came out, it, I went through this transition. But it took like three minutes for this to happen. 20 seconds in the tunnel, three minutes in the fog. Wow, and then I, end wow. up, then I end up traveling 100 miles instead of, Ten. In three and a half minutes. Three, and a half, three minutes and 20 seconds, yeah. So there's some sort of transition that we don't understand that's different than in a wormhole. The wormhole, they say, well, you go in one end and then when you come out the other, you immediately have traveled that distance through time, space. There's something different going on trying to explain it. That's right, right. Some, Did your dad have any theories after after it occurred? Uh, well, no, he was a businessman, so he, he didn't research right. it like me. Yeah. But I always kept him informed. Whenever he was interviewed, he, he backed me up 100%. Hmm. I'm not 100% sure if you already said this already, but the guys that you did interview, that were there other guys that traveled through time? I know that you said there was one pilot. Yeah, there was uh, one I didn't tell you that emailed me, but it, it was his family that emailed. And he he passed away a few years ago. But, and he lived to be old. And it was his grandchildren that contact for thanking me for making them realize that their grandfather wasn't crazy. <laughs> he used to tell them, the story about him flying. He was in the uh, Air Force, World War oh, yeah. II, flying what's called a gypsy moth, a double winger, real sturdy airplane. Though. And he was just on a practice mission alone. And he was offshore of the Carolinas. And he encountered 
probably what I call a time store. That the big circular shaped small that I flew through, I call that a time store. Hmm. But he probably ended up in one similar to that. And he found a tunnel to get to escape it. And he shot through the tunnel and he, and he used to tell his grandchildren that he flew through the hands of God. <laughs> wow. And I can relate to that too. Because you already know You've already seen it Playing over in your mind A bunch of times Before it go You better believe it And get the feeling We'll be going through the night Am I right? We must never Come backwards Cause it don't seem The natural way to go So it's like a spiritual experience then almost. I was going to end my book saying that I felt like a, I flew through the hands of God and, and, and I was a giant prehistoric flying bird, the 30 foot wingspan. <laughs> Back to the, the guy that flew through the tunnel, 1945 or sometime around there, kept telling his children about it and they thought there was something wrong because he ended up finding an airport. When, he didn't know where he was, totally disarmed after he came out. He found out he was over 200 miles from this Air Force base, 400-something miles or something like that, quite a distance. And it was getting late, and he, so he didn't want to fly at night, so he figured, well, he'll fly back the next morning, and hopefully he won't get in a hell of a lot of trouble with his commander. So he flew back the next morning, got there by the afternoon, goes up to the commander, and the commander says, how the heck did you get here so early? You were supposed to be out flying a mission. What? <laughs> yeah, he lost the whole day, not a half hour like me, 24 hours. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, and he's not the only one. There, there's a, a guy who's on, he's been on TV. He was on a special about the Boeing aircraft. And he was the chief engineer overseeing a thousand engineers that created the Boeing 737. His name was Joe, forget his last name. I met him in uh, Long Island in the Bahamas. He was like semi-retired, had a nice mansion there on the ocean. And so they interviewed him. He's like 95 years old and I still alive. Hmm. But So I told him, and this was way back in uh, maybe 20 years ago when I talked to him. There was a party there in a bar there. So I told him, you know, my experience. And then after I told him my experience, he told me his, which is something that I'm sure he, he never tells anybody. Hmm. And he, he was in a Boeing 737 experimental. It wasn't completed yet. They're still building it. And he's, he's testing it. And he's flying from Boeing Field in Seattle direct to Hong Kong, China. So across the Pacific. Yeah. He's, there's only a few people on board, engineers. Hmm. They were supposed to land there Tuesday, let's say. And it was Wednesday. He lost the day. Huh. The opposite direction. Yeah, the opposite. <laughs> so he flew backwards through the time portal. Yeah. There's some pretty incredible stories out there. Thanks for uh, sharing with us, Bruce Gernon. Uh, your book, The Fog, is available, and you're working on a sequel to that for our listeners. So if you guys want to read some more up on the Bermuda Triangle and, and, and Bruce's experience, uh, feel free to go check out The Fog. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we go? Well, just check out my website at electronicfog.com. There's a lot of information on there. Great. Awesome. Great. We'll put that in the show notes, too, if anybody wants to, to check that out. Bruce, I have one last question for you. This is for Nate. Do you do you believe in B- Bigfoot? <laughs> Sasquatch? Well, uh, uh, well, the short answer is yes. You know, I've never seen one, though. But, you know, I've, I've got a brother-in-law that swears he's 
He's yeah, met one? Well, he was within 20 oh feet. Oh, my gosh. Him, we got to so. get him on the show. Can we get him on the show? Yeah, but that was a long time ago. There's there's right. <laughs> oh, I didn't really. I didn't. Wow, that's great. Bob McGregor helps me to write these books. He's a professional writer with over 50 books written in his career. And he mm-hmm. creates the, book, the Indiana Jones books. But he, he saw two big books. No way. Oh, we would love to get him on the show. See, Nate's a big Bigfoot believer. You could get him. You're telling that story. Oh, He'd man, I would love to hear it. it. We got to get him on the show, Nate. It's Rob McGregor. He's a famous author. All right, let's get, let's get Rob McGregor. He, they had, he, has a big, he has a real big website, too, you can check out. The, uh, or what do they call that when they write all the time, just for free? So Blogging. Blog. He's got a huge blog, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. Great. Well, check it out. Well, thanks, Bruce. Yeah. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. it was- I told you to contact him. He likes to tell that story. Oh, great. Perfect. Well, thank you for your work and thank you for your research. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thanks a lot, Matt. Nate. Well, have a good day, Bruce. All right. And, bye, uh, Bruce. Bye. Bye. Some say life will beat you down and break your heart, steal your crown. So it started out For God knows where I guess I'll know When I get there I'm learning to fly Around the clouds But what goes up Must come down